Hola, soy Gaby, el amigo de Jazmín. Esta semana, un cambio de vibra. This week, a vibe shift. Y conversaciones con gente que me odia. And conversations with people who hate me. Bueno, empecemos el show. All right, let's start the show. Hey, you're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm your guest host, Jasmine Garst. Today we're talking about the vibe shift. You may have heard about this idea in recent days. The mood in the world has changed. Things feel different. The vibe has shifted. And people are talking about it. We've been reading about the vibe shift on social media, in New York Magazine, in a newsletter that kind of started it all called Eight Ball. It's a little hard to explain because we're talking about a vibe, feelings, a mood. But ask a couple of your friends and family and they'll likely tell you the world feels off, uneasy, vaguely dystopian, unsettling. And maybe what it is is that we just went through a crazy, terrifying, over two-year-long crisis. And we're supposed to snap back into normal now, but the pandemic led to breakups, friendships ending, people quitting their jobs. And on a larger scale, a lot of people didn't make it through the pandemic. Elamine Abdul Mahmoud says there came a point when it was impossible for him not to notice the vibe shift. And when I started thinking about the last few months and then the last few years of befores and afters, they just kept stacking up. I was like, my relationships, there's a before and after. Um, how I feel about my country, there's a before and after. And then with the war in Ukraine, um, that elevated to this larger extent of there's a before and after. There, there, there is like a world before this war in Ukraine and a world after it. Elamine is a culture writer at BuzzFeed News. We are a little bit unmoored from most of the rules that we knew to be true before um, the last few weeks. There's a wider change happening, and we don't know how we stand in relationship to that change. Elamine says it's actually more than a vibe shift. Last week, he wrote a piece called What You're Feeling Isn't a Vibe Shift, It's Permanent Change. So I called him up to talk through what he meant by that. And also, I wanted to ask if this change is really just specific to some sector of Americans who've been pretty privileged up until now. I think that's a good point. Um, and here's where I stand on this, is that my specific position on this is that I am an immigrant and the son of immigrants. I came from Sudan to Canada when I was 12 years old. And two years before I came to Canada, the U.S. bombed Al-Shifa pharmaceutical factory in Sudan. I didn't live that far away from it. Uh, for me, thinking about that moment, it's like, actually, the dominance of America and the dominance of the West has not been a good thing for my people. Like, I've seen directly the harms that it has caused. But when I was trying to write this piece specifically, I think I was trying to envision a sort of internet audience who is probably a little bit affluent, has a little bit of access to wealth, has a little bit of access to, I mean, I guess like internet discourse in a sense. And I think for those people, people who are consuming that information, they are feeling a new feeling of being unmoored because for them, 
life has kind of been comfortable. I say for them, I think I'm now part of that them. This is me sort of attempting to check my own positionality in relationship to that because it has changed. Beginning in 1988 till now, if you have lived most of your life in the West, you will have known this relative comfort and this relative peace. And if you feel that kind of crumbling in front of you, you're not wrong to feel that because I think a lot of the things that have underpinned your world have been slowly decaying for some time. And what a privilege it is to finally begin to feel that in 2022 when a lot of other people have been feeling that literally the whole time. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's what we're talking about is maybe even like some cultural code switching, like same, you know, if I was to talk about when I noticed the vibe shift, I might talk about, you know, my own country collapsing in 2001. But then there's like, I'm also part of, of a different um, experience now. Um, and I'm wondering, like, within that experience that you're talking about, you know, you work in media, you have a fairly comfortable life. When did what was the moment when you noticed the vibe shift? I think uh, it wasn't a single moment as much as just like these flashes of like, mm, that feels off. And we can go back to the post George Floyd protests and watching like a brand like Gushers issue like a Black Lives Matter statement. And it's like, what is happening? This feels strange. You know, um, you just have these moments of um, where it feels strange to have, um, <laughs> I guess like, I'm trying to articulate what is kind of an ineffable feeling that this doesn't feel very comfortable. Well, I think when you talk about a vibe shift, like maybe you have to talk about what came before this vibe, right? I mean, when you talk about like the Great Depression, it's it's easier to understand um, like the Great Depression when you when you put into context like the Roaring Twenties, right? Um, and I think like. Maybe on that note, I mean, something that you mentioned is like almost an inevitability of the vibe change. I mean, like, listen, early in COVID, I I was reporting a lot uh, throughout the, the pandemic about people who were thrown into a tailspin. Like I spent time in the Bronx where unemployment levels in parts of the Bronx were like 25 percent, like Great Depression levels. And you kept hearing the same thing over and over again, which is people getting paid very little, working super precarious jobs, and they didn't have savings. And I guess when I hear about this vibe shift, I think, was this vibe shift inevitable? And also, like, in order to understand the vibe shift, we kind of have to understand the vibe... Before. Yeah, like, of almost, like, grotesque excess, right? I think, like, you pointed at something really clarifying, um, which is this idea that maybe we don't exist in the same world. There were institutions, I would say, that did a really good job of reminding us that we live in the same world so that even if... Um, your a specific reality was very different than another person's. You at least were aware of other realities. We consume relatively similar news. We kind of understood a lot about how other people lived, or at least understood a lot better than we do now. I think the last few years have made it a lot easier for us to exist in intellectual silos, maybe more um, troublingly emotional silos, um, ways of not having to think about how other people get through the day. And when you have that moment, you're in trouble because you don't know the kinds of things that bind you to other people. And that's maybe the big thing that has shifted is that I don't think I 
feel like I'm bound to other people in the same way that I used to feel. Um, so we're watching institutions that used to bond us fray, and we don't really know what to do about it. Can we talk a little bit about like how this is expressing itself in pop culture? Because I don't know about you, but I, you know, I'm literally talking to you from my closet. <laughs> um, and, yes. and I, you know, like like so many people, I've been pretty cooped up for the last two years. Yeah. And I'm now starting to go out again. I'm now starting to go to shows very like earnestly and carefully. I love this. It's a jasmine spring. It's yeah, it's it's the spring of jasmine. Um, except that when I go out there, it's, it's weird. It's like, what is the culture now? Mm. Like when I left off, I'm trying to remember what happened in like the last episode of Culture, which was in like 2020, March 2020, like what was even happening? Um, but it's been two years. You know, what is the culture now? It, it almost feels like um, like a void. We are looking for something to define this moment and we don't have it yet. Um, and the fact that we don't have it yet, it just means we're going to keep looking for it. And I think that's natural, you know, because we've, been, we've spent so much time away from one another. And you can see that like in music. Like what was your favorite album from last year? Do you, um, do you have a, do you have one? I I don't remember. I it's a blur. Like last year, it's kind He's of like a blur. what what even was last year? I, that's fair enough. Like when I think about my la- my favorite albums from the last couple of years, you know, um, the Dua Leap album comes to mind. Like I really love that record, but like that's a record you want to feel like in bars and in clubs. Like the fact that you have to hear it in your home changes the context of how you're sort of understanding that music. When I think about TV shows that have recently come out, for example, are you watching Severance? Severance on Apple TV Plus? I give consent to sever my memories between my work life and my personal life. I love. I'm obsessed with Severance. I love it. I'm also like. It's horrifying, but. Well, also, I. I watch it and I'm like, I don't know if I want to go back into the office anymore. <laughs> um, yes. Because it's very, for, for listeners who don't know, it's like a very dystopian vision of corporate of American life. life, of office life. It's like the office, but totally dystopian. And it's <laughs> it's wonderful and it's funny. It's a lot of it is, I think um, most of it is directed by Ben Stiller. Ben Stiller directed most of it, yeah. And the premise is like, what what if you could have a surgery that could separate your your office memories from your non-work memories. But what ends up happening is actually there's a lot of damage that's going back and forth and your severed selves can't really communicate in this world. But I think what the great anxiety in the middle of severance is, is work asking too much of me? And it's an interesting show to land in this moment when so many people are leaving the office of saying, Actually, I spent a long time building my identity around work, and it's clearly not getting me anywhere. Like, there's, there's no victories to be had here. So I'm going to stop that process. Um, so these, these are all things that we're all thinking about as, as we try to come back together to say, like, what is the cultural moment? And maybe it can't be easily defined, you know, but we have these specific examples that we can refer to. Don't Look Up is, I think, a good example of some of the other anxieties we're thinking about in terms of climate change, because a lot of us have settled into this place of 
two unavoidable facts. One, climate change is absolutely real. And two, very few people seem to be interested in doing anything about it. Um, and that is, in itself is kind of a surreal divide to be staring at what is essentially going to be a mass extinction event if we don't sort of start moving towards that. But the movement is very slow or if, if it's existent at all. Uh, these are the things that are defining our moment. We are in an age of anxiety and stagnation both at the same time. And the vibes are off, man. The vibes are just off. As someone who is, you know, tries to be positive to a fault, I will say, you know, the vibe shift. I'm hopeful that the vibe shift could lead to some positive change. I mean, I'm thinking like, you know, that some of the movements that surged in like the 60s and 70s, which were at the very least very interesting, you know. Um, and I guess, you know, I'm wondering what now? I mean, how do we return to to community, to each other? Like, mm -hmm. how do we do that? Can we? I mean, maybe not right now. <laughs> Listen, man, I'm 34 years old. I sure hope we can return to community because otherwise it's going to be a really long life without community. Um, I think a part of it is recognizing what we're going through. Part of it is that we just have to name it. We have to say, okay, the world is not going back to the way that it was before all this started. So how do we build a new world based on these new rules? I think people who have never been political before may have to start thinking about what it means for them to get political. Uh, we have to articulate what it means for us to have community anew, because I think we had an idea of, maybe it was a myopic idea and a relatively limited one, but now we get to re-articulate that. I think that's the most positive version of this, is being posed with the question that maybe you didn't feel like you have to specifically answer, which is what does community mean to you and who are your people and what do you stand for? And those are, those are not easy questions to answer. And I think I'm a part of a generation that has been born into not necessarily having to answer it. Um, I think that's exciting. I really do. But the fact that it remains a question mark might be, at least in the short term, a little bit unsettling. We're going to have to move through that unsettled feeling in order to get to what's beyond it. Yeah, I think for every generation, like that's, I, 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 I've seen a couple of times like this meme that says, I no longer want to participate in historic events. <laughs> and, but yes. you know what? I mean, you don't get to, the way I feel about that is, you don't get to choose that. Like, no. everyone has to go through a historic event. Um, so, yeah. Listen, thank you so much for, for talking to me about this today. I, I think this is so interesting and, and important to talk about right now. I really appreciate you taking the time. My pleasure. This has been such a wonderful conversation. And maybe it really, like, lends to what the vibe is right now, that as we're saying our goodbyes, there are sirens in the background, and that's just kind of where we live now. Thanks again to BuzzFeed News culture writer Alamin Abdelmahmoud. Coming up, my chat with Dylan Marin and why he's chosen to make a living out of talking to people who hate him. This message comes from NPR sponsor Yogi Tea. Support your body and mind no matter the season with Yogi Elderberry Lemon Balm Immune Plus Stress Tea. Adaptogenic herb ashwagandha and antioxidant black elderberry combine with soothing lemon balm in this citrusy blend to help support immune function and stress response. Support your well-being with Yogi Tea. 
This message comes from NPR sponsor CarMax. Imagine buying a car the way you want. Online, from the comfort of home. In person, on the lot. Or a combination of both. CarMax lets you choose the way you buy. They'll even deliver your car right to your door in select markets. And no matter how you buy, CarMax has you covered with a 30-day money-back guarantee up to 1,500 miles. Learn more and start shopping at CarMax.com. CarMax. Car buying reimagined. If you spent any amount of time online, specifically on social media, chances are you've encountered someone who is really mean to you. When I'm not guest hosting this show, I'm a reporter at NPR. I cover criminal justice. And in my job as a reporter, I've gotten some really, really hateful messages. I'm not talking about constructive, thoughtful criticism. I'm talking about abusive stuff. And my reaction is always horror. And then I just delete the message as fast as I can, and I block the person. It almost feels like those words are like a toxic sludge on my screen or in my inbox, and I just need to get rid of it as fast as I can. Today we're talking to Dylan Marin, who does the exact opposite of what I do. I started engaging some of the people who wrote those hate messages. Eventually that grew, and I started moderating conversations between strangers who had gotten into some digital friction of their own. Personally, I find this terrifying, but Dylan makes it work in his podcast called Conversations with People Who Hate Me. He also has a new book out with the same name. And he told me how he came to be this way. My mom is a therapist, so she kind of led with this strong anti-shame style. And I think interpersonally, she also, like, helped me reframe all of our conflict, the natural fights that kids get into with their parents. She would always encourage us to look at it in the face and to step outside of ourselves and figure out what was going on. And invariably, we always learned a lot more about ourselves in the process. And I also think this show and this project and this process is a coping mechanism for me, which is to say that, like, by speaking to people, it was something that I needed to do, to know that they were human and to know that I could reach them. And by knowing that I could reach them, it made it feel less terrifying. Like that level of hate and that amount of hate, it can really ruin your day, if not longer than that. Completely. I mean, and you describe that in your book. You describe feeling depressed about it before you decided to do something about it. Yeah, it was impossible to process. It's a really new phenomenon. Nothing prepares us for this because I don't think we've ever dealt with it at this scale. No, not at all. I mean, it would be the equivalent of walking down the street and getting all kinds of horrible threats yelled at you constantly. Yeah. You know, there's people whose belief system negates other people's very right to exist or to be happy. Are there people that you just can't talk to? Well, I think that's can only be determined by the person who would take part in the conversation. There are many people who I decided to not reach out to for the podcast. There are people who sent death threats to me. There are people who felt so violent in their negativity against me that I didn't feel safe talking to them. I respect safe spaces. In fact, I try and create a safe space in the podcast for people to speak to each other. 
but I do want us all to challenge ourselves a little to see how far the walls of our safe spaces can be expanded. And I think it would surprise you to find that they can be pushed out a little more than you think. And I'm not saying you need to find the most politically opposite person and have a beautiful dialogue with them. But I am saying who is the most challenging person that you feel comfortable speaking to and then go from there. Because if many of us do that, then we can kind of create this whole network of conversations. And you talk about that a lot in the book. You talk about like the high, it's like two different highs, right? The high you get from a really witty, snarky tweet yeah. versus the high you get from actually talking to someone. And and I'm wondering if you could share with us, tell me a story about a time where you talked to someone and you felt that very real, like I would call it nutritious high <laughs> of talking to someone. Mm. So the first ever person I spoke to, the conversation that inspired me to launch this whole project was a teenager named Josh, who had written to me a very homophobic message. And in our conversation, hearing his voice was like this just soothing balm that overtook me. And he no longer became a stranger onto whom I projected my worst fears of who he could be he became a person. And when that happens, you're also separating the person from the hate, right? And that's like the first step of these conversations that you don't actually even have to try for. It just happens. That just feels like you're in the presence of the divine. I don't want to give away too much, but towards the end of the book, give it away. You Okay, you really switch up your social media habit. Yeah. You start to log off yeah. so you can focus. And you describe this feeling which I've had when I log off social media, which is, oh, wow, look, trees, mm -hmm. dogs, yeah. beautiful dogs, yeah. sunlight, yeah. and also like a more intimate communication yeah. with friends and family. And I wanted to ask, how have your social media habits changed versus when you first started and you were getting you know, depressed about the amount of harassment? You know, it's really complicated. I'm back on social media because, unfortunately, I created a podcast for myself that means that I have to be on social media to produce it and to find new stories to tell. I think it's exhausting, but the exhaustion comes from seeing the, the way people speak to each other in the public square and feeling like no matter how many sentences I edit and add to my book— that I am competing with something so much bigger than this project and me. I am hitting up against a wall that is huge. Right. And no matter how many of those episodes I make, it's not going to compete with the allure of tearing someone down and the myth that tearing someone down is in fact advancing your political cause. I can't compete with that. Are you okay with that? No, it sucks. It's sad. And in a lot of ways, I feel like, I mean, you're talking to me on the week of my book launch, so I've been a true publicity gremlin. And I have never been on my phone as much as I have in these last two days. And I already see my mood just plummeting. I wanted to tell you that I, I've always actually identified with you. Um, one of the most common listener comments that I get as a reporter 
and as a host is that I'm overly earnest, mm. that I'm, I'm too earnest. And yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, what's wrong with being earnest? Earnestness and sincerity come off as insincere online, as too emotional, whereas snark weirdly seems more honest. And I don't know why that is. I know that like every time I see someone post a truly banal statement and when they preface it with earnest post alert, I am thrilled when I simply come across a post that just says, I love this printer that I have (laughs) and it gives me joy. And I took a walk today and I saw the most beautiful tree Here it is. Sometimes it makes me feel like I I no longer speak the language of the internet. (laughs) Well, from one earnest to another. (laughs) Thank you so much for this chat. I really enjoyed speaking to you. Thank you so much for having me. Do you want to hang out some more and play a game with me? Yes, I would love to play a game. Excellent. That's coming up after the break. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Jasmine Garst here with Dylan Marin, podcast host and author of the new book, Conversations with People Who Hate Me. Thank you for having me. And your friend Johnny's son is here. Um, Johnny, can you introduce yourself for me? My name is Johnny Sun. I'm the author of Everyone's an Alien When You're an Alien 2 and Goodbye Again and a television writer. Well, welcome to the game. Uh, it's called Who Said That? Ooh, I'm saying that. Here are the rules. I'm going to share a quote, and you are going to guess who said it or what it is about. There's no buzzers, and you can just yell out the answer. And we're in competition against each other. We are in a bloodthirsty competition. Thank you. And that's why I invited Johnny here. I said I want (laughs) to battle him. There are zero prizes. This is public radio. And there's just bragging rights. Okay, good. This is the ultimate test of friendship. I mean, I don't know if your friendship will survive. Who said that? We have such a strong foundation, but this game could rock us so hard (laughs) that we don't even know. Yeah. Yeah. So for the first quote, you can either tell me who said it or generally what it's about. Here we go. What a very West Philly Oscars. Uh, Quinta Brunson. It was Quinta, right? Yes. Well, uh, you guys work in comedy. You, you know this. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm also a huge, I'm an Abbott Elementary yes. stan. Yes. So. It's phenomenal. It's so good. It is. It's so good. And it, it is, it goes to the earnestness thing that you guys were talking yeah. about earlier. That it, it is such an earnest show. And, and it's, it's so, so funny, too. It's so funny. It's incredible. This is the most competitive. (laughs) (laughs) Johnny, I so agree with you. You are beautiful. And Uh, no, stop it. That's not what this game is. Yeah, we need to tear each other apart. (laughs) But obviously, she's talking about the slap that was heard around the world. It's funny because Dylan, I was just thinking, you know, when I, I was telling you earlier that I am very conflict averse. I watched the Oscars live. And I immediately had to, like, hide my face. I was like, I cannot watch this. This is very upsetting to me. And I was watching it with a friend who was like, I need to see that again and in slow motion. (laughs) Um, I was wondering as a conflict resolver and dialoguer, what was your reaction, Dylan? Well, I think, you know, I 
had a very visceral reaction to it too. I think what I was most interested in is seeing how the conversation bloomed online and it becomes a Rorschach. Some people watch that and identify with Jada and some people watch that and identify with Will and some people watch that and identify with Chris. I don't think I can offer anything to this that hasn't already been said and I had a really hard time watching it. Yeah, I also want to point out that it's very West Philly because Questlove won an Oscar for a uh, wonderful documentary. An incredible documentary. Yes. A truly. Of soul. Maybe yeah. that's what Quinta was tweeting about the whole time. She was just like, yeah, Questlove won an yeah. Oscar. This is <laughs> nothing else of note. Yeah. She turned off the television and then turned it back on and was like, yes. <laughs> right. Okay, let's go to our second quote. Okay. I've switched baristas. I know who that is, Lady Gaga. Oh, what? Yeah. You're so good. I'm telling you, I don't spend a lot of time online, but I have uh, been on the scroll uh, for (laughs) this book launch. And I'm also a Gaga stan. And I just have to say, her moment with Liza Minnelli at the Oscars is one of the sweetest things. And I love her. Good evening. You know how I love working with legends. Oh, my baby. <laughs> and I'm so the, the, the switched baristas moment, someone took a video of Lady Gaga talking to Caitlyn Jenner at Elton John's Oscar viewing party. And Caitlyn had been asking Gaga why she doesn't see her at the Malibu Starbucks anymore. And Gaga seemed a little uncomfortable. I think we've all been there, right? Where you run into someone and you're just like, yeah, I don't really go to that coffee shop anymore. Um, yeah, it's like, like Dylan, you don't text me anymore. And Dylan being like, I've switched providers. I'm sorry. I've, I, I'm actually <laughs> no longer with my carrier, which um, means... Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah. I also, I have to say, I love that Gaga might be at this level of of like wealth that she she has a Starbucks and she thinks that's her barista. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> like, yeah, she's like, I've switched baristas. I'm I, no longer yeah. with John. Yeah. And it's like, that's not your barista. That's just a Starbucks barista. Is there a world where it's where it's true? Where she's just like legitimately being like, that is that is my answer. I totally think that she's like, oh, yeah, I have uh, moved to a different coffee house. And I bet Gaga knows the names of her baristas. <laughs> Okay, here's the final quote. Well, it's happening. I look at all these people, a lot of them that I've looked up to throughout my life. I've always paid attention to politics. And then all of a sudden, you get invited to, well, hey, we're going to have kind of a sexual get together at one of our homes and you should come. I'm like, what did you just ask me to come to? And then you realize they're asking you to come to an orgy. <laughs> I have no idea. I am unaware of this quote. Johnny? I have no idea. I have not. I, 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 I'm I, lost I'm, here. Yeah. Is this the first time in history that Anyone both of has us ever been no stumped? <laughs> this is from a Tinder user in New York City. No, just kidding. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Okay, this is North Carolina representative Madison Cawthorn, who said this on a podcast last week. 
He was asked if Netflix's House of Cards was an accurate portrayal of DC. And he said he's been invited to orgies. He said other members of Congress have done uh, bumps of coke in front of him. Some of the people that are leading on the movement to try and remove, you know, addiction in our country. And then you watch them do, you know, a key bump of cocaine right in front of you. Like, okay, dude, we get it. You get invited to orgies. <laughs> Go off. So other Republicans have said that if it's true, he should name names. Oh, they're looking for naming and shaming. Or being invited. Oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Maybe maybe they just, just feel bad. They want to be invited to those experiences. Right. I'm, I think I'm supposed to declare who the winner is. Um, I think you both won. I mean, you both are excellent at the game of who said that except when it comes to congressional orgies (laughs) we didn't get it i am i'm happy to be on the record to not know that much about about that topic (laughs) yeah i think though dylan got two points yeah um I think Dylan won. I think Dylan won. Thank you. I would would love to bequeath it to him. Thank you. When you said it's a tie, I was like, honey, there will (laughs) not be a tie. We are going to acknowledge who stands Quinta Brunson and Lady Gaga. Um, Johnny may stand them too, but honey, someone was quicker to the buzzer. Thank you so much for playing Dylan Marin. He's the podcast host and author of Conversations with People Who Hate Me. And that podcast is out with a new season. And the book is also out now. And Johnny's son, Bojack Horseman writer and author. Thank you both for joining me. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you for having us. Hey, this is Jasmine's friend, Gabby. Ahora nos toca terminar el show como siempre lo hacemos. Every week, listeners share the best things that happened to them all week. Vamos a escuchar algunas de las respuestas de nuestros oyentes. This is Vikram from New York. The best part of my week was after a particularly long travel day, I was able to make it back to the city and reunite with my partner after several weeks apart. We went for a walk, got crepes, and sat in the park on one of the first spring days. It was lovely. Hi, this is Anne from Texas, and the best thing that happened to me this week is that I closed on my first house ever. I'm now a homeowner. It makes me very happy. It's Greta. I'm in Seattle, but I normally live in Salem, Oregon, and the best part of my week is that I just met two old friends in a restaurant for dinner, and we closed it down. Um, and it was so fun to be with people who I've known and loved for a long time. This is Jesse from New York, and the best part of my week was taking my 18-month-old daughter to Puerto Rico, where she recognized my grandmother from photos and called her by name, Tata. And she also recognized the sound of the coqui coming from the brush, which is a sound that really enveloped my whole childhood in warmth and love. Thanks to those listeners you heard there, Vikram, Anne, Greta, and Jesse. Listeners, you can send your best thing to us at any time during the week. Just record yourself and send a voice memo to our new email address, ibam at npr.org. That's I-B-A-M at npr.org. All right, this week's episode was produced by Janae West, Anjali Sastri-Kurbachek. 
Andrea Gutierrez, Liam McBain, and Janet Ujung Lee. We had engineering help from Neil Rauch and Neil Tevel. Our intern is Asia Drain. Our editor is Jordana Hochman. And our big boss is NPR's senior VP of programming, Anya Grunman. Hey, producers here. I'm Anjali. I'm Andrea. And I'm Liam. We're stepping in to say it's the last show for our amazing senior producer, Janae, and our fearless editor, Jordana. They've both shaped It's Been a Minute into what it is today. So much of what you've heard on the show has been because of them. Janae, thank you for your cool, calm, and collected expertise, even when things went sideways. Jordana, you're an amazing editor, and the team is so grateful to have worked with you. You make every single thing you touch better. We wish both of you the best of luck in your next roles. We're so excited to listen, and we'll all miss you so, so much. And with that, be good to yourselves. I'm Jasmine Garst. We'll talk soon.